This podcast contains explicit suspic. I can't say that word. This podcast contains bad words. In 1936, Mickey Cochran should have been riding high and feeling great. He was one of baseball's most revered figures, and arguably the most popular citizen in the entire state of Michigan. Cochran was not only the star catcher of the reigning world champs, the Detroit Tigers, but also the manager who had led the franchise to its first ever title eight months earlier. As a reward, he was even made vice president of the team. Cochran counted famous Detroiters like Henry Ford and boxing champ Joe Lewis among his friends and admirers. He had a roster packed with superstars who seemed poised to win the pennant for the third year in a row. And as the Great Depression forced millions of Americans to queue up in breadlines, Cochran, his wife, and kids were living comfortably in a posh neighborhood with landscaped grounds, fountains, and a golf course across the street. Life was good, and yet it wasn't. For Mickey Cochran had a secret, maybe more than one, and in June 1936, it all became too much to bear. Smack in the middle of the season, Mickey Cochran abruptly walked away from baseball. Cochran comes up to the plate for his third at bat. That's writer Tom Stanton. And he hits an inside the park grand slam home run. When he comes back into, after he scores and comes into the dugout, heads back out to the field, he starts to collapse. He sees huge spots in front of his eyes. And uh, quickly he's analyzed and told that he's uh, had a nervous breakdown. He doesn't, he's a tough guy. He doesn't really embrace this stuff. And so he waits a couple days, and still the, the problems continue until in Boston uh, he has to be taken to the hospital again. Gets diagnosed again with a nervous breakdown. Is quickly uh, separated from the team, sent back to Detroit, where he stays at Henry Ford Hospital for most of two weeks. Uh, secluded, nobody but family allowed to visit. No uh, reports of the Tigers allowed. And uh, and then from there, he's uh, shipped off to to recover in among the wilderness, uh, among the trails in Wyoming. And he's gone for. Um, just about a month of the season, mid-season. Cochran's collapse may have been caused by the stress of trying to be a catcher, manager, and front office executive all at once. Already the conflicts between his different roles were beginning to cause friction on the team. They attributed it to the stress of trying to do too many jobs at once uh, and uh, just being overwhelmed with it. He's such a, an, an intense individual. Perhaps that's what caused Cochran's meltdown. But there is another possibility as well. At precisely the time when Mickey Cochran took his Rocky Mountain vacation, a scandal was erupting in Michigan. The existence of a secret society called the Black Legion, which directed gruesome violence toward Catholics, African Americans, immigrants, and Jews, had just been exposed and become the news story of the year. The Legion wore black robes and black hoods and initiated its members, often at gunpoint, in the dark forest in the middle of the night. One law enforcement official called it the craziest and most dangerous mob ever formed in the United States. As the good citizens of Detroit slept, the Black Legion terrorized minorities who could hardly seek help from the authorities, since the Legion's members included prominent politicians, judges, and what seemed like half the cops in Michigan including Detroit's police commissioner and a hundred officers of the Detroit Police Department. They committed murders, beatings, torture, and in one case, they lured a trusting victim to his death through the promise of a baseball tryout. But in May 1936, their secret got out, and gruesome tales about the Black Legion began hitting the front pages day after day after day. The revelations threatened to expose the Legion's many prominent members, including at least one of Mickey Cochran's best friends. You know, I, I didn't find the smoking gun, and I even hesitate to, to mention it, but it is interesting to me that, that uh, Mickey Cochran's nervous breakdown occurred just as the Black Legion was being exposed and there were uh, calls to reveal everybody who was involved in it. You know, that was the thing. Who's involved? Because people were panning, panicking. They were hysterical. They were finding out their their sons, their husbands, their fathers were involved in the Black Legion, and they 
they had no idea. And so, who, you know, you were wondering, is my neighbor involved? Or, you know, who, who can I trust here? That's coming up on Fade Away. Everybody, and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. Greenberg was out yesterday observing Yom Kippur, and I believe undoubtedly Hank's big bat was missed out here yesterday. Well, that's baseball, and it's my game. You know, you take your worries to the park and you leave them there. The Tigers win, and here's the hero of today's game, Schoolboy Rowe. Why, the fairy tale of Willie Mays making a brilliant World Series catch and then dashing off to play stickball in the streets with his teenage pals. That's baseball. And so is a husky voice of a doomed Lou Gehrig saying, I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Fade Away, the baseball history podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. Today's episode, Tigers Burning Bright, the story of the Detroit Tigers, the Black Legion, and the Motor City of the 1930s. Joining me today is the author of one of the most intriguing baseball books I've read in a while. I'm Tom Stanton, and uh, Terror in the City of Champions is my seventh book. And uh, I'm also a professor of journalism at the University of Detroit Mercy. The book is about uh, is a nonfiction retelling of mid 1930s Detroit and the era of the city of champions, and it it overlaps with uh, one of the darker periods in Detroit's history, involving a secret society that was killing people at the same time as the Tigers, Lions, and Red Wings winning championships, and Joe Lewis being undefeated as the uncrowned champion of boxing, and so you have this uh, battle of uh, light and dark. Uh, good and evil, and uh, it, it, to me, it's a, it's a fascinating story. Entering the 1934 season, the Tigers franchise was in sorry shape. Detroit was the nation's fourth largest city, but the Great Depression had caused attendance at Tiger games to dwindle to about 4,000 a game. A decade earlier, when Ty Cobb was on the team, they'd drawn more than three times that. The Tigers had now failed to reach the 90-win plateau for 19 years in a row, and owner Frank Navin wanted to make a big move to show he was serious about winning. He tried to trade for Babe Ruth, and when that fell through, he settled for Mickey Cochran, the fiery catcher and unquestioned leader of Connie Mack's latest Philadelphia A's dynasty. A former boxer at Boston University, Cochran often wore a fedora to hide the giant set of ears that protruded from his head like jug handles. He had more cultured interests than most ballplayers, occasionally playing saxophone in a jazz band. He also had a temper that few could match. As a young player in Philadelphia, Cochran flew off the handle so completely and so often that his famously temperamental teammate, Ty Cobb, was both impressed and concerned. Once, after his pitcher had walked the bases loaded, Cochran stormed out to the mound, ripped off his catcher's mask, and literally kicked his pitcher in the ass. Mickey Cochran didn't suffer fools, and he despised laziness, qualities which endeared him to sports writers and the fans who read their columns. In October 1931, a week after Cochran's athletics played in the World Series, the wife of a teenage zinc miner in Oklahoma gave birth to a baby boy with wispy blonde hair. That miner, Mutt Mantle, named his newborn son Mickey after his favorite baseball player, Mickey Cochran. After buying Cochran from Philadelphia for $100,000, Frank Navin appointed him not only Detroit's starting catcher, but also manager of the team. The Tigers did have a few interesting pieces for Mickey to work with. There was Charlie Geringer, the flawless second baseman who so disdained the public eye that years later he would skip his own Hall of Fame induction. There was General Crowder, a hard-drinking veteran pitcher who sported a tattoo of a naked woman on his bicep. There was Fred Marbury, a hard-throwing reliever who already held baseball's single-season and career records for saves, although he didn't know it, since the save stat wouldn't be invented for another 35 years. 
There was Leon Goslin, a prodigious hitter nicknamed Goose for the awkward way he played defense, running circuitous routes in the outfield while flapping his arms. But the Tigers' best player was arguably Mickey Cochran himself. His lifetime on base percentage of 419 remains by far the best of any catcher in baseball history, 26 points higher than the next best guy, Joe Maurer. The previous season, Cochran had gotten on base at a 459 clip, another record that still stands. And it turned out he was a pretty good manager, too. It turned out to be a brilliant choice. He came in in 1934 and lit a fire under uh, this mostly young team. It had a couple veterans, uh, but the young guys really bought into Mickey telling them that they, they could compete, that they could contend, and they did. Cochran was a guy who, if he were managing and playing today, because he was a player manager at the time, uh, would undoubtedly be on mood-altering medication. And I don't, I don't say that flippantly. Um, he had extreme highs, extreme lows, and uh, you know, he, he left everything on the field, but he also took losses personally, you know, locking himself in, in a hotel room for 24 hours after a particularly tough one, um, and then being on the other end, uh, extreme highs. And the, the whole city just kind of rallied around him, as, as did the, the team to a good degree. So the city was just delirious because this was coming during the, the Great Depression as well. And so unemployment is staggeringly high in Detroit, and the city is looking for any reason to have a diversion from those dire times. And the Tigers provided it. Cochran's Tigers were a talented bunch, but they caused a ton of headaches for their high-strung manager. Most of the headaches were supplied by the Yasiel Puig of the 1930s a headstrong, prodigiously gifted young outfielder named G. Walker. Walker was cocky, strong, a natural 300 hitter, and fast as a deer. But he also had a knack for making dumb mistakes that drove his teammates crazy. And he was a young, overly enthusiastic guy who it was said that if you put uh, all of the team on one side of the argument and G. Walker on the other, they would be about equally as loud uh, he was uh, uh, charismatic. The fans loved him because he just kind of played with his emotions on his sleeve. In the same uh, breath, though, he annoyed the hell out of Mickey Cochran and some of his older, more experienced teammates because he had this habit of getting picked off base in key moments. One sports columnist wrote, Walker, a most likable man and one of the most aggressive of players, has never learned to control himself on the field and to harness his ability. He should be one of the headliners of baseball, and he would be if he bridled his temper and concentrated on the game. Once, in the eighth inning of a tie game, Walker managed to get picked off twice in the same inning. The next day, a fuming Mickey Cochran kicked him off the team, confiscated his uniform, and sent him home. I've done everything I could to help him, Cochran said, and then he goes and kicks away a game through reckless, stupid blundering. I'm through with that fellow. But when the Tigers got back to Detroit, G. Walker was there waiting for them like a chastened puppy dog. He begged for another chance, and Cochran let the players vote on it. They voted to take him back, although he would have to serve a 10-game suspension, pay a $20 fine, and most humiliatingly, publicly apologize in front of his teammates. The reinstated Walker would bat 332 over the rest of his seven-year career with Detroit. Walker attracted his fair share of attention, but no player on the Tigers was a bigger star than pitcher Linwood Thomas Rowe, a second-year man from the backwoods of Arkansas, who had picked up the name Schoolboy while pitching in an adults league at age 14. A gambler, drinker, and a charming southern rogue, Schoolboy Rowe was like a living, breathing character in a Mark Twain novel. He filled reporters' ears with colorful tales and filled his locker with superstitious talismans like jade elephants and good luck coins. And he was winning games like few pitchers ever had. His fastball was unhittable, Charlie Geringer said. I've never seen anything like it. Most devout baseball fans, if they know the 1935 Tigers, they're aware that there are four Hall of Famers on that team. Mickey Cochran, Hank Greenberg, Charlie Gehringer, and Goose Goslin. But at the time, 
uh, schoolboy Rel was probably the most endearing character, the most beloved. And it, it's partly because he's a young guy, he's from uh, Arkansas, he's got this uh, aw shucks kind of country-ish attitude, and, and he's winning games. In the summer of 34, he's winning, you know, 9, 10, 11 straight games, 12, 13, 14, 15, approaching the American record, 16, ties the record. And, uh, you know, the whole nation is paying attention to him at this point. In the midst of his winning streak, Rowe was invited to appear on the most popular radio show in the country, hosted by pop star Rudy Valley. The Fleischman G-Sauer, presenting a variety entertainment directed by Rudy Valley. The show's writers scripted some stereotypical hillbilly dialogue for Rowe to recite, including a shout-out to his fiancée. How am I doing, Edna? That became an instant pop culture meme. And he goes on there. They've scripted some lines for him, playing off of the, again, that, that country-ish uh, uh, vibe that he has, that it gives off. He goes on there and he says, Hello, Ma. Hello, Edna. How am I doing? And Edna is his high school sweetheart. And, and they become this love story. You know, they become the, the glittery valentine that, that uh, is part of the baseball season at 34. And wherever Schoolboy Row goes, whenever he appears on a, a ball diamond from then on, he's greeted with, uh, you know, how's Edna? Where's Edna? Uh, How am I doing, Edna? They just pair up the, the line or a version of it. It's not actually the line he, he said. And, of course, the, the opponents on the other team use this. They, you know, this is a, a, a merciful days of heckling. And so if he's having a bad outing, gives up a home run, the other guys are yelling, well, how am I doing now, Edna? Mickey Cochran once said, sore arms have become ultra-fashionable among pitchers. They've been babied so much that they've become a bunch of mollycoddles. I get tired of hearing about sore arms. True to his word, Cochran made every effort to ride Schoolboy Row into the ground. At one point in 1934, he had Row pitch six times in ten days. Shortly afterward, Rowe heard his oblique, but three days later he was back on the mound, pitching an 11-inning complete game and hitting the game-winning sack fly. A few days after that, Rowe threw a four-hit shutout against the Yankees in front of 80,000 people. For his 16th straight win, tying the American League record, Rowe pitched another complete game and scored the walk-off run himself in the bottom of the ninth. Sports writers were beginning to compare him to Lefty Grove, Cy Young, and Christy Mathewson. When Rowe went for the record-breaking win on the road in Philadelphia, 4,000 fans back in Detroit gathered in a public park to listen to the game on a set of loudspeakers. But Rowe got pummeled by the A's, halting his streak at 16 consecutive wins. Shortly after the streak ended, Rowe was reunited with the now-famous Edna, who had been his sweetheart since 8th grade. When her train from Arkansas arrived in Detroit, Reporters, photographers, and teenage girls packed the train station to get a glimpse of the beauty who'd captured the heart of America's most famous pitcher. She became the toast of the town, and for the rest of the season, her picture appeared in Detroit's newspapers more often than that of any Tigers player. As schoolboy ascended to stardom on the mound, Hank Greenberg, a young first baseman built like Paul Bunyan, was doing the same at the plate. In his first season as a full-time starter, Greenberg hit 63 doubles and drove in 139 runs. But he also had to deal with constant anti-Semitism, even from his own teammates. During spring training, Alabama-born Rip Sewell, the future inventor of the EFAS pitch, had called Greenberg a big Jew bastard during an argument over whether to open or close a window on the team bus. When the bus arrived at the team hotel, the six-foot-three Greenberg disembarked and proceeded to pummel Sewell in the street until the police broke it up. The Tigers released Rip Sewell the next day. Now, as September approached, Greenberg was faced with the difficult decision of whether he should play on the high holy day of Rosh Hashanah. Again, 
Greenberg wasn't devoutly religious, but he worried that it would be disrespectful to play baseball for pay on a day when Jews are expected to spend their day in prayer. He was gently pressured to play by his teammates, owner Frank Navin, and even several local rabbis who gladly printed their blessings on the front page of the free press. In the end, Greenberg did decide to play, and he hit two home runs, providing the only scoring in a 2-1 victory. But he felt guilty about it afterward, and ten days later, when Yom Kippur rolled around, Greenberg decided to spend the day at Temple. The Tigers lost without him. As Detroit ran roughshod over the American League in 1934, celebrity fans began to flock to the stadium. No one loved the Tigers more than a young African-American kid named Joe Louis Barrow, who'd grown up watching games in Navin Field's segregated bleachers. Barrow's family was among the 80,000 African-Americans who had migrated to Detroit from the South over the last decade, tripling the city's black population. Barrow's stepfather had escaped Alabama after an incident with the Ku Klux Klan, and his teenage stepson found work in Detroit doing odd jobs, like shoveling snow and selling coal. His mother gave him a small allowance for violin lessons, which he secretly spent on boxing lessons instead. Now 20 years old and rising quickly in the professional ranks, Barrow dropped his last name, fighting under the stage name of Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. He was acclaimed by many as the best boxer in the world, though he wasn't technically the heavyweight champion, because nobody would give him a shot at his title unless he agreed to fire his longtime manager and hire a white management team instead. Joe Lewis loved baseball even more than boxing. Even as an adult, he could often be found playing pickup games in the street. He eventually started his own softball team, the Brown Bombers, on which he played first base. He enjoyed going to Tigers games, too, and as his fame rose, they started letting him take batting practice with the team and sit in the good seats, usually reserved for white fans. When he couldn't make it, he listened on the radio and devoured box scores along with his breakfast each morning. Joe Lewis loved the Tigers, and the feeling was mutual. Mickey Cochran was such a fan that he once skipped a Tigers game, and he was the manager, mind you to fly to New York and watch Joe Lewis fight Max Bear at Yankee Stadium. Lewis gave him a left pull in the face, a left over the eye. Lewis, another left, another left. And Lewis is ready with that right at any instant. And Max went into a clinch. The referee orders him to break. They're over here against the ropes. Max has got his back. And he took an awful right. And then a left to the jaw. And he has gone to his knees. He's down. And the count is four, five, six. Bear is on one knee. Seven, eight. Nine, there is not up, and there is on his knees at the count of ten. Your fight is all over. Your fight is all over. Around this ring are at least 200 cameramen shooting their lenses at the victor, Joe Lewis, whose wrist is now being held up by the announcer. Lewis does not bear a mark on his smooth, brown face, which even at this moment... Another famous Tigers fan was Henry Ford, who attended his first-ever baseball game in September 1934 as the Tigers prepared to clinch the pennant. Ford and his son Edsel had recently paid $100,000 to become the exclusive sponsor of the World Series broadcast on national radio, a deal that was surely helped along by the fact that their hometown team was the favorite to win the series. Ford enjoyed the Tigers so much that he let his fandom take precedence over his notorious anti-Semitism. Henry Ford hated Jews, but he was willing to make an exception for Hank Greenberg, which he justified by claiming, with no factual basis whatsoever, that Greenberg was only part Jewish. As the 1934 World Series approached, team owner Frank Navin tried to meet ticket demand by erecting a massive set of temporary wooden bleachers on the outfield grass, providing an extra 17,000 seats and reducing outfield dimensions by 20 feet. Fans built bonfires as they waited overnight in the ticket line. Of course, if you were a celebrity, the Tigers would gladly furnish you with a complimentary box seat, and many took advantage, including Henry and Edsel Ford, Will Rogers, George Raft, Jimmy Cagney, Carol Lombard, and Babe Ruth. 
The World Series is on the air. This is Naven Field, Detroit, where the Detroit Tigers and the St. Louis Cardinals are battling for the World Championship. The play-by-play descriptions of all the World Series games are brought to you with the compliments of the Ford Motor Company, Mr. Henry Ford, Mr. Edsel Ford, and your local Ford dealer. Producers and distributors of Ford and Lincoln Drives and Ford Trucks. Before Game 6 of the World Series, schoolboy Rowe hurt his hand under mysterious circumstances and then lied his rear end off about how it happened. First, Rowe said that someone had slammed his hand in a hotel door. Then he said it happened in an elevator. Then he said he got it caught in a revolving door. Rowe had received anonymous threats from gamblers warning him not to win the game or else, and it's possible that he solved that dilemma by trying to break his own pitching hand. It didn't work. X-rays were negative, and Rowe pitched anyway, fairly middlingly. He threw a complete game, but lost 4-3. The 1934 World Series became famous, of course, as the coming-out party for cocksure Cardinals pitcher Dizzy Dean and his brother Paul, who combined to win 53 games that year, including all four Cardinals wins in the Fall Classic. The Tigers fell behind quickly in Game 7, 9-0, and once it became apparent that they were going to lose the World Series, cranky Detroit fans took out their frustration on Cardinals left fielder Joe Medwick, pelting him with garbage and rotten fruit very nearly causing a forfeit. And when Joe Medwick went out to play, left field for the Cardinals, he beat the right, threw everything that they had, many of them were carrying lunches, threw oranges, apples, bananas, and sandwiches, had every description and of every make out on the field, including a lot of pop bottles. The field was cleared off several times, but Senator John Martin Landis, after conference, has ordered Joe Medwick out of the lineup and kicked forward. The Tigers' concessions manager, prepared for the worst, had sent two dozen vendors to the bleachers, armed with 300 pies and cartons of overripe fruit, to sell specifically for the purpose of throwing at the Cardinals. After the game, the Tigers turned their attention toward appeasing those angry fans by bringing home a title in 1935. Fadeaway is sponsored today by Audible. For listeners of Fadeaway, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Just visit their website at audibletrial.com fadeaway. I love listening to audiobooks, and Audible is the best place to get them, with over 180,000 titles to choose from and an easy-to-use app that makes it simple to listen on any device. Summer is the season for road tripping, so why not listen to a great baseball book while you drive? One title fadeaway listeners might enjoy is The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team, by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, narrated by Kirby Hayborn and John Pruden. Follow a couple of baseball podcasters who get the opportunity to serve as GMs of an independent league team, where they have free reign to test out all their crazy theories about baseball. I started listening to this book a couple of days ago myself, and it's really fantastic. Frankly, it was hard to put down, or rather, hard to press stop for long enough to come into the studio and record this show. You can get Ben and Sam's book, or any other book of your choice, for free within seconds by visiting audibletrial.com fadeaway. That's audibletrial.com fadeaway. The 1935 Tigers turned out to be almost as good as the previous year's model. Seven different players hit 300, including schoolboy Rowe, who also won 19 on the mound. Detroit once again held off the Yankees for the pennant, but shortly before the World Series began, one of the team's most devoted fans, the humorist Will Rogers, died in a plane crash in northern Alaska. A member of our club has been killed, Mickey Cochran said. In the World Series, the Tigers faced the Chicago Cubs, who were infamous as baseball's most profane bench jockeys. Three years earlier, during the 1932 World Series, Cubs players had heckled Babe Ruth mercilessly, including, most likely, the epithet nigger lips, which was an insult commonly hurled at Ruth throughout his career. The taunting got under Ruth's skin, so much so that he supposedly pointed to center field and then hit a home run there. 
Now, three years later, the Cubs hurled a similar litany of vile insults at Hank Greenberg. The exact words they used are lost to history. Greenberg would only describe it as Jew this, Jew that. But whatever was said, it was disturbing enough to cause umpire George Moriarty to halt Game 3 and warn the Cubs that if they kept heckling Greenberg, he'd start kicking him out of the game. Chicago kept at it, and Moriarty kept his promise, booting three Cubs in what remains the only mass ejection in the history of the World Series. For this act of arbiter heroism, umpire Moriarty was fined $200 by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Hank Greenberg, the home run leader, shows his stuff by knocking the ball into the stands for the climax of the now-famous single-double-single home run of Patron's G-Man. The game was won in the first inning, sending old Charlie Root to the shower. The Tigers won three of the series' first five games. With Game 6 tied 3-3 in the bottom of the ninth, Detroit scored a walk-off win on base hits by Cochran and Goose Goslin. The Tigers were finally world champs. Owner Frank Navin had waited for years to win as his team's first title, and now that it had been achieved, he said, I can die in peace. A month later, he did exactly that suffering a fatal heart attack while horseback riding. To fill the management void, the new owners added another job title to Mickey Cochran's already demanding duties, Team Vice President. The months following the 1935 World Series were a magical time in Detroit. The Associated Press named Joe Lewis the winner of its prestigious Athlete of the Year award, and the Motor City's sports teams just couldn't seem to lose. On December 15th, 17,000 people showed up in the snow and sleet to watch the Detroit Lions face the New York Giants in the NFL championship game. The Lions, who had adopted their nickname as a tip of the cap to the Tigers, were a new team on the scene in just their second year of existence. Earlier that year, they had offered the best player on the University of Michigan's squad, a center named Jerry Ford, $2,800 a year to play for him. But Ford turned it down and took a position as assistant coach at Yale instead. Ford's career worked out just fine. 39 years later, he became the 38th president of the United States. And things worked out okay for the Lions, too. Behind the exploits of Ernie Cadell, the great running back known as the Blonde Antelope, they destroyed the Giants in the championship game 26-7. A few months later, the Detroit Red Wings captured the Stanley Cup making Detroit the first American city to hold all three major sports championships at once. The NBA, by the way, hadn't been founded yet. It came along a decade later. Mickey Cochran knew baseball backwards and forwards, but there were few people on earth less suited for the job of Tigers vice president than he. When I was a player, I worried only about myself, he said. Now I have to worry about everybody. His new duties included negotiating contracts with his players, something that presented the potential for conflict of interest since he was also expected to be their trusted teammate on the field. Yeah, the, the various roles for Mickey Cochran did come into conflict. There are numerous uh, conflicts uh, that make it difficult for a person to be a player on the team, you know, thus a teammate, to be uh, the player's manager, and then also be the guy who's... Uh, someone involved in their contract negotiations. I mean, you could see how it would be ripe for all sorts of uh, disagreements and disputes. When Hank Greenberg requested a raise for 1936, the negotiations turned acrimonious. Cochran perceived the 25-year-old slugger as a punk kid who hadn't paid his dues, and he griped that Greenberg was requesting a higher salary than Cochran himself had ever made. Of course, Greenberg was also a better player than Cochran, although Hank wasn't about to say that to his own boss. Cochran's response to Greenberg was the same one Red Sox management would perfect in the 1990s. He started running down his own players in leaks to the media. He let it be known that the Tigers would be just fine without Greenberg and his 170 RBIs if it came to that. Cochran lied to the press, exaggerating Greenberg's demands in order to make him seem unreasonable. He spoke of his desire to replace baseball's best young slugger with the broken-down carcass of Al Simmons. 
said Greenberg. I can't see why the Tigers aren't willing to gamble a few thousand dollars on me when they invested $250,000 in new bleachers and $75,000 in Al Simmons. The same sports writers who had been so impressed with Cochran when he arrived two years earlier now found themselves bewildered by his fuck-you management style. One of them, Malcolm Bengay, who wrote under the pen name Iffy the Dopester, was especially critical, comparing Cochrane's capricious rule to that of a Chinese emperor. Bengay wrote that Greenberg would have settled long before if Cochrane had displayed just a little bit of tact, a little bit of maturity, and a little bit of understanding about life. Greenberg eventually settled for $25,000, 10000 less than he wanted, and then broke his wrist in the 12th game of the season and was out for the year. The Tigers struggled to play 500 ball in the first half of 1936, and Cochran's troubles began piling up, turning him into a tightly wound ball of stress. Mickey was pretty quick on the draw with his temper, the normally reticent Charlie Gehringer said. Not only was Greenberg hurt, but the team's big acquisition, Al Simmons, had lost a step or three, and schoolboy Rowe had a sore arm. Not that his manager believed him. Cochran, he was such a tough guy. You know, he, you know, he played with played with injuries. So if he might have torn ligaments and he'd still play. He might have uh, you know, uh, wounds that would require stitches later, but he would still play. He'd be out there hobbling around. And it's interesting to see how he deals with pitchers who are having sore arm issues because he believes, he's telling the media this, he, he thinks that sore arms are, are simply uh, psychological. <laughs> you know, so your your catcher, your manager, and your team vice president uh, doesn't believe you if you're schoolboy row and say, you know, my arm feels bad. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and so that creates, uh, <clears throat> as you can imagine, some uh, uh, odd relationships. In 1936, many body parts important to the team weren't functioning as they should, including Gehringer's back, Simmons's ankle, Goose Goslin's neck. Rose and General Crowder's pitching arms, and Cochran's eyes, which couldn't focus properly, both literally and figuratively. Ever since Cochran arrived, Detroiters had noticed his deep depressions and dark moods. After a loss, he might sulk excessively or even break into tears. The burned-up energy of trying to carry the baseball world on his shoulders another year has left Cochran spent and gasping, one writer observed. He was given a new nickname, Black Mike which referred not only to his down-and-dirty work on the field, but his pessimistic outlook off it. He was very different from the Mickey Cochran, who had been so successful in Philadelphia. Management responsibilities changed him somehow. And while it's not all that productive to play armchair psychiatrist at a distance of 80 years, it's hard not to notice that he exhibited the wild mood swings often seen in those suffering from bipolar disorder. He is taciturn, surly, sullen, or boyishly happy, as befits his mood, and like a boy, he makes no effort to hide his feelings, the columnist Malcolm Bingay wrote. On June 4th in Philadelphia, it all came to a head during the Tigers' best inning of the year. During a 10-run third inning, Cochran hit an inside-the-park grand slam. As he crossed the plate, his heart was pounding a mile a minute, and he started seeing dark spots. He proceeded directly to the clubhouse, where he collapsed. It was the beginning of a nervous breakdown. Five days later in Boston, the Red Sox team doctor diagnosed Cochran with what was called oversecretion of the thyroid gland, a diagnosis intended mostly to allow the macho Cochran to save face, providing him with a physical excuse for his mental breakdown. Black Mike traveled back to Detroit for a 10-day stay in Henry Ford Hospital. When that was over with, Doctors urged him to take a sabbatical from baseball for his own well-being. So Mickey Cochran boarded a train for Wyoming, where he would spend the summer relaxing his body, clearing his mind, and, conveniently, escaping the biggest news story Detroit had seen in years, the unraveling of the Black Legion. In 1933, a Detroit man named Dayton Dean was asked by one of his co-workers if he'd be interested in joining a new patriotic organization. Dean said sure, and a few nights later he was whisked away to a clearing in the woods, where he was met by a bunch of men wearing black robes, black capes with gold trim, 
and black hoods decorated with skulls and crossbones. The men interrogated Dean about his religion, his political views, his friends, and his possession of, and expertise with, firearms. Having passed the Inquisition, he took an oath at gunpoint, which specified that if he ever failed to obey an order from the group's leaders, he would be disemboweled, with his heart cut out and roasted over a spit. The oath ended with the words, In the name of God our Creator, Amen. Dayton Dean was now officially a member of the Black Legion. It was a secret society. If you were a white Protestant male, somebody, um, one of your friends might invite you to a card game or a, or a drinking party or a barbecue, and it turns out you're soon being inducted at nighttime in the darkness uh, with perhaps a red light shining on a weapon uh, against your will often, uh, bowing to do whatever your Black Legion masters told you. And it was like the Ku Klux Klan in some ways, uh, except it was a secret society. The Klan membership was often secret, but the Klan would have marches. You know, they marched on the nation's capital. They they conducted uh, events in public, but the uh, Black Legion did not do that. They had black gowns, black hoods, skull and crossbones on, the, on their outfits, and they uh, they had you know most of the same biases that the Klan had. Uh, they viewed themselves as true American Americans, and they were against all isms except. Americanism. So they were against Judaism and Catholicism and Negroism and progressivism and socialism and communism. Uh, and they, they prospered in uh, three states, Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana, and in particular in the industrial towns. And that was because they ended up uh, being used uh, to fight the formation of unions. They got co-opted in, into that battle in, in Detroit, for example where the massive Ford River Rouge plant was said to have uh, more than half of its departments controlled by the Black Legion. In Michigan, the Black Legion was vicious and prolific. They killed a newspaper publisher who they deemed too friendly to African Americans and immigrants. They killed at least two organizers in the auto workers union. They bombed Communist Party offices and bookstores that stocked progressive literature. In one Detroit suburb, they bombed the mayor's house, killing no one but sending his wife and kids flying across the living room. Dozens of other enemies of the Legion either died mysteriously or suddenly disappeared, their fates unknown to this day. One of the Legion's leaders was a bloviating physician who'd been kicked out of the KKK for being too much of a loose cannon. Another was an electrician whose pipe dream was to pump cyanide gas into all the nation's synagogues during the holidays. A third leader, the Michigan State Commander, was a local milk inspector who favored a harebrained scheme to inject typhoid into the milk bottles delivered to Jewish homes. In 1929, the Black Legion burned down the home of one of Lansing, Michigan's most politically active African Americans, a Baptist minister named Earl Little. Little's son Malcolm, four years old, had to run as fast as he could to escape the burning house. The family survived, but two years later, Reverend Little died in what was likely a Black Legion murder staged to look like a suicide. Young Malcolm Little never forgot those horrors. Twenty years later, he changed his name to Malcolm X and spent the rest of his life raging against the racism that he'd first encountered as a four-year-old from the Black Legion. What made the Black Legion especially terrifying to African Americans was its often arbitrary choice of victims. In 1935, a trio of Legion members went out driving with the intent of killing a random black man. They put a bullet in the spine of the first African American they saw, a worker walking home from his job at the Ford plant, lunch pail in hand. Black people made easy targets for the Legion, because the police would barely investigate, usually finding a way to blame the victims for their own death. On another occasion, 
The Legion was planning a weekend getaway at a house in the country and asked one of its members to, quote, get a hold of a colored guy for the occasion. A black handyman was tricked into going on the promise of getting paid for some work. When they got there, one of the Legion members shouted, Get your guns, fellas, we're going to have some fun. They shot the man in the chest, neck, and head before dumping his bullet-riddled body in a swamp. Victims of the Black Legion couldn't go to the police for help, in large part because it was often the police themselves who were hiding behind the Legion's robes. One cop said he was tricked into joining after being invited to what he thought was just going to be an innocent meeting about, quote, keeping colored children out of our schools. Thusly coerced into joining, the man went on to trick several other cops into signing up as well. But even during daylight hours, the Detroit Police Department in the mid-1930s was hardly a beacon of fair and good policing. On one occasion, the cops pulled over one of the Black Legion's most notorious members. In his car, they found several Black Legion robes, some racist literature, a revolver, and a bunch of rope. The case was dismissed. The Black Legion carefully chose its members, and if you were asked to join, saying no was not an option. One man was invited to what was supposed to be a card game, and when he arrived, he was strung up with a noose around his neck until he agreed to take the oath. To minimize damage caused by leaks, the Legion was divided into separate cells called regiments, and the members of each regiment knew nothing about the activities of the others. There were 13 regiments in the Detroit area alone. One of them rented a vacant church to use as its headquarters, and even hired an unsuspecting preacher to serve as a front for the constant activity going on at all hours. Like the rest of Detroit, the Black Legion members were also baseball fans. They often arranged their schedule of mayhem to avoid conflicting with Tigers games. Which is, of course, ironic when you think of their biases, because the Tigers, one of their stars is Jewish first baseman Hank Greenberg, and one of their other huge stars is the guy who plays next to him, Charlie Deringer, who was one of the most prominent Catholics in, in Detroit. And so for the Black Legion to plan crimes around the schedule of the Tigers, for them to lure uh, one man at least to death, uh, to his death uh, around the plot involving baseball, it's just, uh, it's just fascinating to me. In May 1936, a man named Charles Poole, who was Catholic, was accused of beating his pregnant Protestant wife. It turned out to be a false charge, leveled by a drunken relative with a grudge, but it was enough for the Black Legion to sign his death warrant. A Legion operative approached Poole, who was a semi-pro catcher, and offered him a job playing ball for an industrial league team with a day job on the side. Poole should come to a team meeting later that night, the man said, so he could be fitted for his uniform. That night, two Legion members picked Poole up from his house, but instead of taking him to a baseball meeting, they took him out to the countryside, where they shot him six times with a 45 and left his body to rot in a ditch. As it turned out, this baseball murder became the key to unraveling the Black Legion conspiracy. The vengeful relative who lied about Charles Poole beating his wife developed a case of buyer's remorse and started talking to the cops. One of the names she spilled was that of Dayton Dean, a Black Legion hitman who, according to him at least, had joined the Legion reluctantly and had committed all his murders and beatings under coercion from his Legion superiors. Several more Legion members confessed, and a few more still were arrested, but in the end, Dayton Dean was the only one who named names, and most of the details we know about the Black Legion today come from his testimony. The problem was, the Black Legion had successfully compartmentalized so that all members of one cell knew nothing about the activities of the others. Dean was only able to finger those Legion members with whom he had personally interacted, including, shockingly, Detroit's police commissioner. 
But for every public official who was exposed, there were dozens of others whose involvement remained, and still remains now, a secret. Law enforcement efforts were stymied in part by the Ford Motor Company, which refused to grant permission for the police to drain a swamp on company land, which the Black Legion had used as a dumping ground for bodies. The investigation's credibility took a hit when the prosecutor investigating the case was revealed to have been a Black Legion member himself. He'd even been foolish enough to sign a membership card. In the end, only 12 Black Legion members were ever convicted of murder, and only three of those were sentenced to life in prison. Most Legion members remained free to continue working at the Ford plant, or to wear their police badges, or to hold high public office. One of the investigators revealed years later that the police had compiled a list of 2,000 known Black Legion members, but it contained so many names of prominent officials that they were ordered to suppress everything. Once the Black Legion's existence was made public, it became the news story of the year. Americans were fascinated by the saga, so fascinated that it was even turned into a Hollywood film by Warner Brothers, a studio that prided itself on making gritty dramas about important social issues. Warners had taken on the South's criminal justice system in I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang, and Prohibition Gangsters in films like Little Caesar and Public Enemy. For their new film, simply titled Black Legion, they cast one of their contract players, a young B-list star who usually played gangsters, as the leading man. For Humphrey Bogart, it was a plum role that gave him the chance to escape being pigeonholed as a supporting actor. Bogart played a Michigan factory worker whose co-workers force him at gunpoint to join the Black Legion. He commits a murder on behalf of the Legion before recognizing the moral sinkhole he's jumped into. Yeah, well, she ran out on me, didn't she? Uh, Whose fault was that? I suppose she started to run around half the night with a bunch of rotten thugs. Who says that thug? I do, and you can tell him I said so. Well, I wouldn't go around shooting my mouth off like that if I was you. We don't like it. No, we don't. No, we don't. The sooner you learn, the better. Frank, you ought to know I don't learn easy. Yeah, well, you will if you get a dose of what the Dombrowski's got. Yeah, what did they get? Plenty. And anybody else that monkeys with the Black Legion will get the same thing. The Black Legion. So that's what your rotten gang calls itself. It ain't a gang. It's a fighting organization of real Americans. Real Americans running around the country in nightshirts ganging up on helpless people. The cops are going to be glad to hear about this. Go on, tell me some more. Oh, wait a minute, Ed. You can't go to the cops. I can't. Oh, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Unless you quit that gang. They'll kill you. They'll kill me for telling you. Those Black Legion guys don't fool. I'm not fooling either. You're going to quit that gang. I can't get out. I've tried. They won't let me out. Nobody ever lived to get out of the Legion. Ed, I swore a sacred oath to stick to them. The film ends with Bogart's character exposing the Black Legion in dramatic courtroom testimony, but also being sentenced to life in prison for his own part in the crimes. The film is a broadly accurate portrayal of the Black Legion, though it does pull its punches somewhat, sanitizing the group's violence and focusing on its anti-immigrant views, while ignoring its terrorism of African Americans. Still, the movie was a huge critical success in the 1930s, and it remains entertaining to watch, even today. And what does all this have to do with Mickey Cochran? Well, maybe nothing. Or maybe a lot. There's no fire here, but there is a bit of smoke, most of it emanating from one of Mickey Cochran's best friends, Harry Bennett. Bennett was second-in-command at the Ford Auto Plant, Henry Ford's right-hand man. He ran the Ford Service Department, which had nothing to do with fixing cars, but instead resembled the Pinkerton Agency, or perhaps Richard Nixon's gang of dirty tricksters. The Ford Service Department was a secret police force of spies, detectives, and hoodlums whose main objective was to stop unions from forming at Ford and to infiltrate those that did manage to organize. The force was stocked with ex-cons and 'er ne'er-do-wells, among them Eddie Seacott, the disgraced Black Sox pitcher. Harry Bennett controlled several judges who often released convicts early so Bennett could put their brawn to bad use. Harry Bennett was described by one acquaintance as an inhuman brute and by another as upholding a rule of terror and oppression. He was also inseparable from Mickey Cochran. Cochran and Bennett were neighbors in suburban Detroit. 
Bennett was a frequent presence at Tigers games, sometimes even traveling with the team on the road. When Cochran applied for a permit to carry a concealed firearm, Harry Bennett was the witness who vouched for him on his application. Cochran's kids called him Uncle Harry. In 1936, one Detroit columnist, clearly writing about Bennett, though not mentioning him by name, wrote that Mickey Cochran was beginning to surround himself with shady friends and yes-men who were bad influences. When Cochran had his nervous breakdown, it was reportedly Harry Bennett's Wyoming ranch that he fled to. No concrete evidence ever surfaced as to whether Harry Bennett was formerly a member of the Black Legion, although at least one congressman tried to get the FBI to investigate the matter. Certainly Bennett's politics were the same as the Black Legion's, and by some accounts, most of the men who worked for him at Ford were members. In fact, being a Legion member was considered one of the easiest ways to get hired at Ford. And there were many in Detroit who suspected that Harry Bennett, who was Henry Ford's right-hand man, uh, was a member of, of the Legion. Uh, and I, I do reveal in the book that the police commissioner of Detroit, uh, who was also friends with Harry Bennett, was a, a member of the Legion. And the suspicion was that Harry Bennett was. And Harry Bennett, he was the guy who handled some of Her, uh, Henry Ford's darker wishes. And um, that included uh, trying to prevent the unions from forming. Bennett liked to surround himself with uh, the sports stars in Detroit. He was becoming close to, to Mickey Cochran, and they would eventually become so close that Mickey's kids would uh, refer to him as Uncle Harry, and they, they would own, own homes next to each other. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't find the smoking gun, and I even hesitate to, to mention it, but it is interesting to me that, that uh, Mickey Cochran's nervous breakdown occurred just as the Black Legion was being exposed and there were uh, calls to reveal everybody who was involved in it. You know, that was the thing. Who's involved? Because people were panicking. panicking. They were hysterical. They were finding out their their sons, their husbands, their fathers were involved in the Black Legion and they they had no idea. And so, who? you know, you were wondering, is my neighbor involved? You know, who who can I trust here? They had members who were judges, who were, the, the police force was honeycombed with members. And so you didn't know who to who to turn to. And it created hysteria. And, and Cochrane's nervous breakdown took place at about that time, right at that time, actually. And um, according to at least one report, he was whisked away to Wyoming by Harry Bennett. And Harry Bennett had arranged a, for that uh, nervous breakdown recovery in Wyoming. And so there's some peculiarities there. Uh, not enough to hang an entire story on. Not enough to say anything definitely. But it is, uh, I think it's uh, of interest. Although it's unknown whether any Tigers were members of the Black Legion, several players would have been prime candidates for recruitment. The anti-Semitic Rip Sewell was no longer on the team. But outfielders G. Walker and Jojo White, white men who hailed from Alabama and Georgia, respectively, were fond of casually calling each other nigger in the clubhouse. Schoolboy Rowe had blamed the end of his 1934 winning streak on, quote, colored people placing hexes on him. Four members of the Tigers pitching staff lived in a ritzy apartment complex that explicitly banned Jews. And, of course, there was Cochran, who was held in high regard by the public, but had friends of notably questionable character. Out in Wyoming, Mickey Cochran found himself in what he called the greatest place on earth. He was staying on Bennett's Ranch near the small town of Cody, in a picturesque valley between the Bighorn Mountains and Yellowstone National Park. It was also a half-hour's drive from Hart Mountain, where, six years later, 14,000 Japanese Americans would be imprisoned in a concentration camp during World War II. The big skies and clear mountain air helped Cochran clear his head. Although he'd brought baseball equipment with him, he was eager to forget about the game for a while. Instead, he got lots of rest, interspersed with horseback riding, fishing, and big game hunting with a hired guide. He lost nine pounds. Back in Detroit, the Tigers had lost their first seven games without him and fallen completely out of the pennant race. Finally, on July 15th, after missing 27 games, plus the All-Star game, which he'd been scheduled to manage, Cochran took a train back east and rejoined the Tigers. He felt reinvigorated, but everyone could tell it wasn't the same old Mickey Cochran. Some wrote about him as if he were on death's door. 
It is painful to watch the creeping shadows of a man's sunset, a Boston newspaper man said. At first, Cochran rejoined the Tigers as manager only, and when he did return to the playing field, he didn't play much. His career as a baseball player had pretty much ended when he touched home plate on that inside-the-park grand slam. It would end for good very suddenly the following season, when he was hit and almost killed by an errant fastball that he never saw until it was too late. Despite multiple skull fractures, he hung on as manager for another year before the Tigers finally fired him in 1938. In his later years, Mickey Cochran worked as a gladhander for some munitions companies and eventually ran a dude ranch with his wife back in Wyoming. But one acquaintance wrote that, out of baseball, he was completely unhappy. As Mickey Cochran's career faded to black, the Black Legion made a half-hearted attempt to rebrand itself as the much more mundane-sounding Patriotic Legion of America. That soon fell apart, but the Legion's ideas, of course, are still with us today. Pretty much constantly since the U.S. was founded, there's always been a group willing to pick up the ball of nativism and xenophobia and run with it. In the 1850s, it was the Know Nothing Party, which railed against Catholic immigrants from Ireland and Germany. In 1915, the Ku Klux Klan enjoyed a rebirth when it added immigrants to the list of people it hated. The KKK became so popular that as many as 15% of the nation's white men were members, and the Klan was able to take control of the state governments of Colorado, Oregon, and Indiana. Then came the Black Legion, and a few years after that, the America First Movement, a conglomeration of isolationists and anti-Semites whose chief spokesman, Charles Lindbergh, urged America to stay out of World War II so they could form business alliances with Hitler. In the early years of the 21st century, the baton was picked up by the Minutemen and other so-called militias. Today, of course, the same sentiments expressed by all those groups are found in the angry whites who feel bypassed by the American economy, threatened by multiculturalism, and who, as we speak, are being cynically exploited by Donald J. Trump. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. I will build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it and they'll be happy to pay for it. Trust me, Mexico will pay for it. It is amazing when you hear the Black Legionnaires talking about issues. Uh, they resonate today. A lot of the same issues. Uh, uh, when the FBI finally sends somebody to investigate the guy who views himself as the leader, Bert Effinger, you know, he's, he's, he has very strong feelings about the Second Amendment and, and who should be armed and who shouldn't. And this isn't a time when... There were more restrictions, actually, on owning handguns and things of that nature. And you have, you know, the Black Legionnaires accusing the president, FDR at that time, of, you know, being a socialist. You know, that's, he's a socialist. And, uh, of course, immigration. Huge issue today, huge issue then. People felt the nature of their, their country was changing as these foreigners, often from Europe, and uh, in many cases Catholic, and thus, in their view, having allegiance to a, you know, a, a foreign figure, the Pope, you know, over the, the president. Yeah, you do see these, these issues echoing over time, and, and so it's, you know, it's kind of disheartening in some ways as, you're doing, as I'm doing the research, and, and I think, oh, my goodness, we are still... They're still debating a lot of the same issues they were debating there. I mean, the, the details and the nuance of it have changed, but they're the same issues over and over through the decades.
This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. As always, thanks to the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, especially our interview guest, Tom Stanton, whose research is the basis for most of what you just heard. His new book is called Terror in the City of Champions. We'll put up a link to it on our website. Speaking of our website, it's located at fadeawaypodcast.com, and that's where you'll find the episode box score, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show, as well as some terrific photos of the Black Legion and Mickey Cochran's Detroit Tigers. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at fadeawaypod. And of course, it's a huge help if you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you've been listening since our pilot episode, you may remember me telling you that today's episode, episode four, was going to be a basketball story. Obviously, it was not. That Hoops episode is still in the works, but it's a pretty epic story with tons of interviews, and I want to make sure I take the time to get it right. So I'm going to hold off on releasing that one until basketball season rolls around again. In the meantime, we'll spend the rest of this summer making as many baseball episodes as we can. Thanks for listening, and I've got just one thing to ask. How am I doing, Edna? Trees, best trash fruit, blood on the leaves, blood out the roots, black butter swinging in a southern breeze, stretch fruits hanging from the popular trees. Smell